would join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for your word. And that. And we pray that you be glorified as we open up your word. So fill us with your spirit. Open our hearts up to you even as we open your word up to us. Work your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 505 years ago tomorrow, uh, Martin Luther uh, posted a rant on social media. And it was, wasn't it? It was kind of a rant. And the door of the church in Wittenberg was their bulletin board. It was kind of insta-faced wit of its day. Um, and uh, Martin Luther was kind of God's blunt instrument in a lot of ways. I mean, he was kind of a difficult, incendiary, grumpy, obnoxious person. He just also happened to be right. So it's kind of hard to know what to do with some of that. Um, I was dial doodling on the radio this week, and I, I hit the Catholic station just as they said, Reformation Sunday, and I went, oh, I, I have to know. <laughs> Surprisingly, um, the priest really didn't like Martin Luther. Um, <laughs> he was not having it, and he was incredibly unflattering inaccurate and offensive in the stuff that he was saying. He's like, this is why Protestants all say, go ahead and sin. Sin doesn't matter. Who cares? I'm like, pretty sure we don't, actually. And the reason I know that that was patently unfair and that he was just trying to make Martin Luther look bad is because on Friday I read an article by an evangelical that said Martin Luther was awesome. It was incredibly <laughs> flattering and inaccurate and remarkably inoffensive because he was trying to make him look good. He's a really difficult person. And it's hard to have that balance. And let's be honest, most of us, if we think about him at all, paint him in whatever picture we want him to look like. Is he, is he an anti-Semitic twerp? Is he incisively seeing the things that are wrong? Was he ranting? Yeah. Was he right? Yeah. yeah. I'm, even the Catholic Church later adopted and agreed with most of the 95 theses. Uh, yeah, he was actually right. Because he was. But back in the day, Pope Leo was like, you got to recant at least these 41, I think. At least these 41 of the most offensive things that you're saying. By the way, again, later, the Catholic Church included most of those 41 and went, yeah, no, he was right. But at the time, he's like, recant, say that this is not biblical. This is not from God, or else we'll excommunicate you. And whatever else we want to say about Martin Luther, if you go, oh, I love him, or oh, I can't stand him, whatever. Whatever else you want to say, I will never get past, the, at least historically, what happened. That Martin Luther famously responded, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture, or by clear reason, and I, I'm not sure that I agree with you counsels, because you guys, you even disagree with yourselves, but... Unless I am I'm convinced by Scripture, I am bound by the Scriptures I've quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it ne it's neither safe nor right to go against this kind of a biblical conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Whatever else, whatever else we want to say about Martin Luther, I can't help but respect that he says, I genuinely think this is what Scripture is saying. 
And I will not, even on pain of excommunication, pain on death, I won't say that I don't see this as what Scripture is saying. I just can't. If I genuinely think this is what God is saying, I can't compromise one inch. Here I stand. I'm like, yeah, okay. That, if nothing else, that year after year is what I will affirm on Reformation Sunday. Whatever else we want to say about, well, then we got this theology and this right theology and this right understanding, but yep. But if we want to actually celebrate October 31st, it's that. That a Catholic priest, because he wasn't, he wasn't a Protestant protesting the Catholic Church. And if you ever hear anybody summarizing it that way, that's incorrect. He was a Catholic priest protesting corruptions within the Catholic Church. I will always stand and say, I appreciate that he gave us a good model to follow of saying, here I stand. And whatever else, whatever else happens, after I've done everything to stand on this truth of God's word, that's something I can respect. Today I want to talk about somebody who stood on what he genuinely believed God said. It didn't matter what everybody else around him thought. It didn't matter what his eyes would have told him. He's like, I know what God said, and I'm judging based on that. So we're going to skip ahead to Joshua chapter 14, because we're not technically doing a Bible study here on Joshua. We're looking at lessons from the book of Joshua. So skip ahead to Joshua 14, and I want to talk about a section that at first blush is boring. And I, I admit it, you know, it's not a lot of running and jumping and there's not a lot of people doing anything spectacular. At first blush, it's going to look like there's not a lot that we can apply. And I'll be honest, there isn't. <laughs> not every verse of the Bible is a sermon in and of itself. Not every verse of the Bible needs to be cross-stitched on a pillow and put on your sofa, Right. Every verse of the Bible is part of every story and every teaching of the Bible, and every story and every teaching of the Bible is there for a reason. And every story and every teaching of the Bible we can apply, which means that every verse does become important. But sometimes it's those verses that you go, what? That if you look at them in the larger corpus of Scripture, you can see how this all goes together. But anyway, um, I want to talk about the allotment of lands in Canaan. And already you can just picture people going, that sounds like a that sounds like a firecracker sermon. But if you remember, there's there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? And they have come back to Canaan after centuries in Egypt, and each tribe is going to get its own plot of land, its own cities, its own pastures, all that kind of stuff in Canaan. Right? Okay, that's already inaccurate. That's not true. Technically, there's 13 tribes because Joseph's tribe got split between his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, which is why they're often called half-tribes. The half-tribe of Manasseh, who settled on the east side. We talked about them the last couple of weeks. The half-tribe, you go, yeah, because it's a half of Joseph's tribe. But there were just a lot of them. There's enough of them that they each considered themselves a tribe. And the tribe of Levi did not get their own region, right? Because they just got a couple of cities and some farmland because the whole point of being in the tribe of Levi is that God is going to be your portion. 
you get what you get because you're working in the temple. You're working in the tabernacle. So they don't get like what everybody else gets. But they get a tenth of what everybody else gets, which means that they all pretty much get the same. And technically, if you really want to get... It's not even just those 13, 11, 12, 11, 13 tribes getting land. There were a whole bunch of other Canaanite tribes that came back with the Chabiru, weren't there? The Chabiru, that's the Akkadian word for wanderers. that kind of got contracted to Hebrews. But it's just a whole bunch of wandering tribes. There were a bunch of Canaanite tribes that trotted out to Egypt and became enslaved and then came back to Canaan with them. It wasn't just who we think of as the Israelites. So it's a little more complicated than just 12 tribes each got an allotment. You go, no. But while Ephraim and Manasseh were going, we got so many people, one allotment for two tribes, you're actually each a half tribe, for two tribes just seems inappropriate. So Joshua starts making tweaks and concessions and things, which is no big deal because they had a lot of people. But that's why the main tribe of Judah, from which we get the word Jews, got the half of Canaan that's referred to as Judah. And why two other tribes, that are basically just one tribe, got the other half of Canaan that we call Israel. And the other tribes, all the other tribes, got bits and snippets on the outskirts and in and amongst those. You're like, so Judah's tribe and Joseph's tribe got almost everything, and then everybody else got a little bit too. If you remember Joseph's relationships with his brothers, you can probably imagine why, as generations went on, not everybody appreciated that. Like, wait, so Joseph and Judah get almost everything, and the rest of us get a little bit. When Moses was allotting it, they're all like, yeah, we're not even there yet. Sure, okay, whatever. Do that for a couple of centuries. People get snotty. But all of that is what it's talking about in those first couple of verses of chapter 14. I say that because if you read those first verses, you might just go, oh, I'm not even tracking with that. That's all that they're getting at there in those first couple of verses that end in verse 5 with, so the Israelites divided the land just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Well, mostly as Yahweh. There's some tweaking and there's some changes and things. But this is why our old buddy Caleb decided he wanted to sit down and talk with Joshua about who gets what. Because if you remember, Joshua and Caleb were the only guys that went into Canaan as scouts and said, yes, I believe God, and I think we can take it. We weren't sent in to decide if we could take Canaan. We were sent in to get a lay of the land so that we knew how to make plans to do what God had told us to do and take Canaan, right? So they came back and said, all right, We've got ideas of how God can help us do this. And the other 10 spies all went, yeah, we can't do this. Which is not what they were sent in for. They weren't sent in to decide if they could go. Because God already said to. But the other spies all went, yeah, no, we saw these descendants of Anak, these Anakites out there, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We looked like, we know we look like that to them. I mean, we're not psychic, but you know what they're thinking. Caleb and Joshua went, um, I know God's thinking. I know what God said. I'm going to trust in God's word, not in what I see. It's like Peter walking on water, but then looking at the size of the wind and the waves and going, wait, I can't walk on water, and turning his eyes away from God? 
Caleb and Joshua went, yeah, I'm looking at how big God is, and the other ten spies are looking at how big the Anakites are. Anyway, I guess there's already a small application. I'm not going to stop and do applications, but I want to throw you a bone just in case you're going, I I don't know what to do. What giants are in your life that, you know, obscure your vision of God? right there. God might be bigger, but he's way over there. And they're right here, and you can't hardly see God, because is there anything like that? Or you're... No, you're, you're cool. All right, well, some people, that happens sometimes, where financial, physical, medical things are so big, it's hard to see God. Well, Caleb and Joshua didn't do that. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Caleb says to Joshua, all right, you know what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. You know, right? And everybody here knows, right? I mean, you remember. That's 45 years ago. You remember what he said 45 years ago. You remember what that guy said to you um, the year that the original Star Wars came out? You remember that. Do you remember the year the original Star Wars came out? But he was like, 45 years ago, you remember what he said. You know what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God. I love that. Moses, the man of God. You know what God himself said to our godly leader, who was the conduit to understanding what God himself said. So it's not like it would be good to disregard what Moses said, right? He's already, you know, man of God, Yahweh, about you and me. I mean, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, I don't know if I mentioned this, he served Yahweh, and he said this. You know, what? So the guy that actually was a mouthpiece for Yahweh sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back that report according to my convictions. To my convictions, But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed Yahweh my God wholeheartedly. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. I took a stand when everybody else, okay, you also took a stand. We took a stand when everybody else crumpled under the pressure. We trusted God and we trusted his word and we measured the giants of Anak not against our own strength, but against God's strength. And we said, well, they ain't nothing. They said, we feel like grasshoppers around them. I'm like, these guys ain't even grasshoppers to God. It's nothing. My faith has stood the test of time. So you remember what Moses said. On that day, Moses swore to me, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, he swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed Yahweh, my God, wholeheartedly. This isn't just this isn't just Caleb being prideful or boasting. He's quoting Moses. He's like, this is why. Moses said, because I was following God wholeheartedly. The first ground we saw, that hill country that we scouted out, that ground held by giants, that's the ground God promised me. Yahweh himself, through Moses, who spoke for Yahweh. Is that still the ground allotted to me? Because everybody's wanting more ground, and everybody's tweaking, and everybody's throwing out who gets what. I do get the hill country, right? That's what we talked about. And on one level, that sounds mundane, even almost petty. Doesn't it? Why is there a whole chunk of scripture talking about this? But I can totally see why an 85-year-old Caleb is going, I just want to make sure that my 
family gets what my family's supposed to get. Everybody's vying for the land. I want to make sure that what belongs to me belongs to me. But beyond that, it's important. Important though this was to, to Caleb. I want you to stop and think. This is, this is also an 85-year-old man asking for the responsibility, reminding Joshua that he gets to have the responsibility of taking ownership of land still currently occupied by giants. They're still there, but I promise we can dislodge them. I know we can. Can I have the hill country so that we can dislodge the giants there? 45 years ago, 10 out of 12, 10 out of 12 recon guys, young, virile, haha, we're the cool guys. We dressed like ninjas. We went. 10 out of 12 guys said, we can't do this. 45 years later, two elderly guys, the same guys that said this 45 years ago, say, yeah, we can. We still can. I still can. I love that. It's not because Caleb is so inherently tough, but because he knows God has given him the same strength now that he had back then. It was never just about his strength, but God has always been there for him. He says, just as Yahweh promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years. Since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved around the desert because y'all didn't go in like you're supposed to, it's not just I've been keeping myself fit. He's like, God has been keeping me alive to do this. So here I am today. I'm 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day that Moses sent me out. I can totally do this. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. I wasn't afraid of climbing this mountain, climbing these hills, and taking it from these giants back then. And a generation later, I'm still not. I am not asking for soft, grassy land. I'm not asking for a retirement community. I just want my promised land. It's hill country. It's rugged. It's mountainous. And it's filled with giants. I genuinely thought we could take it then. I genuinely think we can take it now. Is, is there an application to that with us today? I think some of us at any given time could be tempted to go, I have reached the stage in my life where, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like working that hard. I, I, I've already done this. I, 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 don't, I don't think I can, I, I think good enough is, is, is good enough for me right now. And that might be when you turn 85, you might go, yeah, I, I've done my, my bit for queen and country, I think I'm done. might be when you turn 35 and insurance rates change. It might be when you're 25 and you go, well, now I have children. I don't know if I have time to, I don't know. It might be when you're 15 and you go, I can't even drive. I don't know. It might be when you're five and you're like, well, I can't like teach a Bible study. I can't, I don't know. Is there ever a time when you are basically just a spectator and you should get the easy slopes? Caleb is like, I'm still just as spiritually vigorous, if not physically vigorous as I always was. And that was never about that. Just give me the hill country that Yahweh promised me on that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and that their cities were large and that they were fortified. You were there. But Yahweh helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. This is not cockiness or self-assurance. This is God assurance. It's like, God helping me, Yahweh helping me. We can do what he said he was going to do then. In point of fact, Joshua 11:22 tells us that by the end of all their conquests, 
no Anakites were left in the Israelite territory. Caleb did exactly what he said he could do because God did exactly what he, Caleb thought he was going to do. So Joshua 14, verse 13. Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance, the city that we're told was formerly known as Kiriath Arba, the city of Arba, the city named for the greatest among the, Amal- uh, among the Anakites. But since by that time there were no Anakites left, Caleb renamed it. He renamed it Hebron, the place of coming together, successfully converting the greatest city named after the greatest guy among the greatest giants that everybody was afraid of. What's interesting, and we're even told later on, that Hebron was a city of refuge, which we should probably maybe talk about next week. A place of coming together, a place of sanctuary. We're told in verse 15, then the land had rest from war. The end. Again, you'd be tempted to go, well, I guess yeah, we came up with two, two applications. You're never too old. God is good. Yeah. And, uh, and whatever that first one was that I was really convicted by, but I don't remember now. <laughs> Let me toss out a couple of things to chew on. Just so that you can feel like I, I earned my pay this week. Let me suggest a few applications. I don't know, we're not allotting land. Okay, first off, I think it's absolutely worth noting God's faithfulness to Caleb. He gave him exactly what he promised. He did exactly what he said. Even if it took 45 years, God was absolutely faithful, wasn't he? I don't know that God gave him a time frame. And I genuinely think God was very clear if they would have all believed 45 years ago, this would have happened 45 years ago. It's like, nope. You can take it. And Caleb goes, I think we can take it. And what do you know? They can take it. Which leads me to a second thing. Is It's absolutely worth noting Caleb's faithfulness to God, especially since it took 45 years for God to make it happen, right? You ever found yourself being really faithful for a while? I mean, obviously, faith has nothing to do with the details of the thing, it has to do with the details of the character of the thinger, right? I have faith in God bringing about his promises, not that I have knowledge of how all the mechanisms are going to work. So by definition, logically, faith should never wane. If the character of God stays the same, your faith should not wax and wane, right? Because it suggests that on some levels our faith are oftentimes based on the details we see around us. How I have tremendous faith so long as the waves aren't that big. I have tremendous faith to bring back the dead as long as they're only mostly dead. I have tremendous faith so long as... I love that God is faithful to Caleb, but Caleb says, oh, it's been 45 years, but I still have little doubt. In fact... His doubt, he's like, I'm wondering if Joshua is going to be faithful about the allotments. I don't worry at all about God being faithful about winning the allotment. I just want to make sure that you are still upholding what God himself said. Oh, I know we can take it. God already handed it to me. Just just like, remember when God said, I've already given you Jericho. I've already given you AI. 
And Joshua's like, cool. I'm going to believe that because God's promise is functionally the same as receiving what he's promised. It's just a matter of timing. It's a matter of the mechanism and am I doing this the way that God wants me to do it to honor him? But Caleb's like, oh, I don't doubt God one bit. It's you I got problems with. Which again leads to a third thing that's worth noting. It's absolutely worth noting that Caleb never even considered that his time had passed. It never even dawned on him to think that maybe he's getting a little old, a little long in the tooth for this sort of thing. Never even dawned on him to think that way. There is no retirement age because it has nothing to do with our ability to do the thing in the first place. Can you be a paraplegic, strong man or woman of God? Can you be an elderly, strong man or woman of God? Can you be a teenage, strong man or woman of God? All right? At what point in your life do you go, well, this isn't that point? I mean, sure, if I were 85 and I had nothing to do, I could be a prayer warrior, but I have small children and I have a job to get to. And I mean, when I turn 85, I'm sure I will suddenly turn into a strong man or woman of God. This only works if you stretch and strengthen those muscles every day. If it's, a, if it's a discipline, and for Caleb, it's a discipline. God himself kept Caleb active so that God himself could fulfill his purposes in Caleb himself. The focus here is not on the details or the obstacles, but on the character and the faithfulness of the God who said he would do it. Do you, before I go any further, do you agree? If that's the case, who cares about giants? We do. Don't you? I don't know what giants you see. What giants do you see in your life? That massive financial thing that you weren't expecting and you don't know how you're going to pay? That cancer that is looming in the distance? That surgery that's terrifying to contemplate, that rift in your marriage that you just, how are you ever going to, what giants are there that you focus on? Because they're right here. But if your faith and your confidence comes from the character of the God who promised, who, who, who cares about the giants? I don't mean to say that it doesn't matter. I don't mean to say that they aren't giants. I don't mean to say that they aren't things you need to deal with. But how big is God? Caleb goes, I know full well what the hill country's like. I'm 85 years old and I want to be on the slopes of a mountain. I'm 85 years old and I know exactly how big these giants are. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, yeah, ignore the details. I'm saying I know full well the details. But I put the details here and I've put God here. So the details are just a small thing in the framework of God's picture. I think that's important. He's trusted and he's been faithful and he's obeyed God his whole life. He's not going to change that now that he's nearing the end of it. He took his stand and he's still standing. So we're told that 
that Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed Yahweh, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. It's another one of those verses you go, yeah, 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 names, names, names. But I can't help it. It brings me to another application. I can't help it. That verse brings me to another one. Because, you know, the Kenizzites, they weren't Israelites, right? Kenizzites weren't. They weren't descended from Abraham. They're just another Canaanite tribe that got carted off to Egypt and was enslaved. Caleb was not from the people of God. This is just another tribe that Moses liberated along with his own Levite tribe. It's just another tribe that came back amongst the Chibaru. In fact, we're told he's descended from Esau, which makes him an Edomite. Not always seen as the best guys in Scripture. So Caleb wasn't a faithful Israelite. Instead, like Rahab, like the Gibeonites, Caleb is a non-Jew who came to have faith in Yahweh. How powerful is it that this guy keeps saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, because I had wholehearted, unwavering faith in Yahweh. You go, as any good Jew does. You go, he wasn't a Jew. How many times in Joshua, in this book, have we gotten a character who isn't part of the people of God, but because of their faith in Yahweh, become part of the people of God? I don't just mean how many times in the Bible. How many times so far in the book of Joshua has this happened? He's a non-Jew, an Edomite, who is not only welcomed into their community, but according to Numbers 13, eventually became a leader within the tribe of Judah. Even though he's not from the tribe of Judah. Which makes it interesting, because he's a non-Hebrew, but he's traveling with the Chabiru, making him a Hebrew. He's a non-Jew, but he becomes a leader in the tribe of Judah, which technically makes him a Jew. He's a non-Israelite, but he's given land in Israel, which means that he's an Israelite. All of which brings me to one-fifth application of this. When Moses was allotting all this land to all these people years earlier, he came to this Edomite and said, your tribe gets no land, but you do. Make a deal. I'll give you, tri- I'll give you and your family land around my city, my Levite city of Hebron. Because we find out that's a Levite city. He's like, you don't get land. And I'm a Levite, so I can't even give you part of my Levite region. But you get all the pastures and all the land around my city. I think that's significant, don't you? And it's all in these details that we tend to gloss over that seem so mundane, but it's all about every, it's all about everybody reminding themselves here. It's not about personal gain or making sure that we keep all the goodies in our family, in our church family, in our family of God. But even in the Old Testament, gasp, the Old Testament, we have a God who is incredibly loving and is being, making sure he's taking care of everybody and who's saying it's all about reaching out and drawing people into the family of God. You go, but they aren't us. He's not even circumcised. Half of you guys aren't. (sighs) But who cares? This is why you guys are my people, so that you can welcome other people into my people. And living that out every day. 
as an act of worship, welcome in these people and say, be my family. Here, be in my city. I can't give you any of Manasseh's stuff, but I can give you my stuff. I think that's huge. That you can have faith in God being faithful. And it doesn't matter whether you're old or young, or it's an easy day or a hard day, or, or, or if you're fighting an uphill battle, literally, in Caleb's situation, or you're resting on the hill afterwards, looking at it. I, I think of Jonah resting on the hill afterwards going, could not be more angry with God because he was willing to reach out to people that aren't us. I think of Caleb going, man, I'd lo- I'm happy to march up that hill waving God's banner because God welcomed me even though I wasn't us. Rule of thumb, if you are still breathing today, God is not done with you. There is nothing that suggests your life is on hold. May I lovingly and respectfully ask you, ask your pastor, please, never again tell me your life is on hold. My life is on hold until I can get that. No, it isn't. Some of your planned events are on hold. You're still just as much alive. There's still just as many minutes in a day. Your life isn't on hold. Your faith can't be on hold. Your witness isn't on hold. Just some of the things you had planned. Because God is bigger than all the giants. Do you trust that? Do you live that out? Do you say at the end of the day, with all of us other flawed people, I am bound by the scriptures. My conscience is captive to the word of God. It's neither safe nor right to go against that conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. I want to live my life in half measures. I want to live like I actually believe this stuff. Choose this day who you'll serve. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that even if there aren't any verses there that themselves jump out at for a cross stitch, that this story and all of its details still point us to how we should be looking at the world around us, the people around us, putting everything within the framework of you. Help us, Lord, to do that in a way that honors you and with hearts that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.